Would you open up your Bibles to Hebrews 12? Today we'll be in Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 24. Um, this is kind of the middle of a larger passage. Um, it's, it's flanked on either side by some moral exhortations, but in a lot of ways, Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 24 is the climax of the book of Hebrews. He had this, it's a really beautiful, poetic, rhythmic passage. And it's describing the ultimate comparison. The book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with it, is a book of comparisons. We compare Jesus against the angels. Talk about how Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. And so we come to chapter 12. We've gone through all these comparisons, and here is a final comparison. Comparing Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. So we don't know who wrote this book. Um, there's a lot of theories. My favorite, I, I actually think that Paul probably wrote it, but I'm not married to that idea. But we do know that it's probably a sermon. It's probably a sermon given to people like you who are probably sitting in a worship gathering, and it's been transcribed and passed down to us. And so think about that. Reflect on that as we read together as we come to Hebrews 12 to read. So let's pray before we come to the Word. Father, we thank you that you've given us this opportunity to gather together, to come into your presence, and to sit at your feet, to learn from your word, to learn from your apostles who you've appointed. And Father, would you open our hearts and our ears to receive what you have for us? Would you change us by your word so that we can be conformed more to your son, and so that we can be perfected by your spirit? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So every week, we've already done this today, every week when we come together, we pray the Lord's Prayer. So most of you know it, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. But have you ever thought to reflect what exactly we mean by that? What are we asking for when we pray this prayer? What does it mean for us to ask that God's kingdom and God's will come to earth as it is on heaven? To those who aren't Christians, it may sound like a political statement that we want to have a, a government run by church elders. 
To a lot of Christians, it sounds like a nice platitude of something in the future. Oh, well, someday God's kingdom will come. But neither of those interpretations do justice to the, the text of the prayer. The prayer that we pray, the Lord's Prayer, is one of the few prayers in Scripture that's given to us to pray, to pray specifically as it is. It's a prayer where God is both founder and finisher, to borrow language from Hebrews 12. This prayer contains God's will. It's, it's not uh, just some nice words. It's a prayer that, God's, that bears God's stamp of approval. And so we should expect that God, who gives us this prayer, would carry that out. We should expect that God is carrying it out now, these things that he's given to pray for. So how does God answer us? The book of Hebrews gives us an answer. That one way, perhaps the primary way, is in worship. So the Hebrews, who were followers of Jesus, the context, they're, they're dealing with these temptations to go back to the temple, to go back to the old forms of Jewish worship, to the old rituals, to the old ways of the old covenant. But here the author of Hebrews reminds us that the old Israel, with its old ways and its old Jerusalem, was passing away. Christians, followers of Jesus, now worship as citizens of the new Jerusalem. Christian worship is not of this world, it's of the next. Christian worship is not motivated by fear, but by joy. And Christian worship is not judgment, but mercy. Christians worship as citizens of a new Jerusalem and a new covenant. So number one, worship is not of this world, but of the next. So I've already mentioned that the form of this passage is poetic. Some of your Bibles may actually have it uh, set out in a poetic form. And the author here is comparing Mount Sinai, the mountain of the law, where God gave the Ten Commandments, is comparing that mountain to Mount Zion. And he does this by putting them in parallel. And so we don't have time to go through all of these, but for each mountain, he lists seven items. There are seven fears associated with Mount Sinai and seven glories associated with Mount Zion. And so this is a good project for you this afternoon or maybe this week would be to go and, and look through those and, and see how they fit and how they go together. But the parallelism begins, as the author explains in verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, and in verse 22, but you have come. So notice, notice the verb tense here. The main verb is in the present perfect tense, and if you're rusty on your um, old grammar from fifth grade, the author is describing a present reality. It's not that you will come at some point. It's not that you are now coming, that you're on, a, on the way. It's that you have come. You are here. The author is describing a present, re present reality that his hearers, that is, the Hebrews, and by extension, us, as we receive this now, are experiencing in the moment of their hearing. The congregation receiving this, both the Hebrews and you now, are in the midst of heaven. Now, certainly there's a future element at play. He's borrowing lots of eschatological language, lots of last days imagery from uh, the prophets before, and maybe Revelation, depending on when you believe that was written. But this isn't a, merely a future reality. The day of the Lord that's described in the prophets is today. The day of the Lord, the future day of the Lord, is now. As we come to worship God, 
Each Lord's Day, notice that we call it that for a reason, each Lord's Day we come to worship God, and the prayer, thy kingdom come, is answered as we gather. It's answered in the gatherings of the church. It's answered in today's corporate worship on earth. And today's corporate worship on earth is a real spiritual participation with the ongoing worship in heaven. Now compare that to verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. Some, some translations may take this differently. You'll notice... In the ESV, the word touch appears twice. It appears here in verse 18, and then it appears again in verse 20. Those are actually two different Greek words, and so this may be a little bit confusing. Which one is it? Are we, are we supposed to touch, or are we not supposed to touch? But the, the second word is, is kind of a straightforward word. It means touch in the way that I'm touching the pulpit, right? Or the way you're touching your Bible right now. The first one has a little bit more nuance. You have not come to what may be touched. This is a word that appears a couple of times earlier in the New Testament and again in 1 John. It appears first in Luke 24, when Jesus appears to his disciples. And they're, they're scared, they, they think he's a ghost. And so he says, touch my side, touch my hands, touch my wounds. And that's the same, 1 John is referencing that, that event when he uses the same word. It appears again in Acts 17. When Paul is standing in the Areopagus, he's standing before the Athenians, and he's evangelizing these pagan philosophers. And he says that the pagans, as they philosophize about God, are grasping after him. It's the same word. They're, they're feeling after him, trying to touch him. The implication, then, is that this word has to do with searching, has to do with discovery. Mount Sinai may be touched in the same way that you look for a light switch in the dark. You know it's there. You know you need it, but in the darkness, it's out of reach. You can't find it. This was the reality of the Old Covenant. The Jews had types, they had shadows of the things to come, but they didn't have the fullness of the real thing. How often do we think like that? Think like people who live in darkness. We think of God as mysterious, we think of God as, as far away, but in reality, he's right before us. We tried to hide from him in ignorance, but to quote Acts 17, God is not far from each of us. He's right here with us, or rather, we are with him and in him as we worship. It makes his riches available to us in Christ through his word and through his church, and he manifests himself to us in worship. We reject this so often. We, we, we skip, we miss the gifts that God has given to us, and we reject his kingdom. And we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. And then we turn away and say, but not right now. <laughs> not yet. Worship is a holy privilege. It's a holy privilege we have to enter into the gates of heaven. So don't neglect his gifts. Don't come here with sadness and fear, but come into his presence with thanksgiving. And enter into his courts with praise. He calls you not to a life under the law. But he calls you into his very house. To sit at his table. Worship is not of this world. Worship is of the next. Number two. Worship comes from a heart, not of fear, but of joy. The, the description of Mount Sinai in Hebrews 12 borrows heavily from the story in Exodus 19. If you're not familiar with that story, the, the Israelites have been traveling. They've already left Egypt. They've been traveling through the desert. And God says, I'm going to give them a law. So they come 
to Mount Sinai, and God comes down. It's, it's just like it's described here in Hebrews 12. God comes down in a thick black cloud with fire and smoke and thunder and lightning, and he sits on top of Mount Sinai. Then he tells Moses to prepare the people. They need to be consecrated. They need to do these ritual washings. This would take several days. And at the trumpet blast, the trumpet blast from Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to receive the word of God. But God says, he doesn't give them the law then. God sends him back down and says, spread the people out a little bit more. They need to back away, make sure they don't come too close to the mountain. And finally, after all of that, God himself comes down in this thick black cloud of smoke and thunder and gives them the Ten Commandments verbally. A lot of times our image of the Ten Commandments is that Moses went up and, you know, Jesus wrote on a tablet. Or, and God wrote on a tablet and then Moses came down. But what really happened is that God himself spoke these words to them. This is the voice that they heard. And it says that the people trembled and the mountain trembled in fear. And the author of Hebrews adds that even Moses who is the holy, God-appointed leader of Israel, is terrified. He trembles with fear. The image at Mount Sinai stands, stands in for the entirety of the Old Covenant and the Israelites' relationship with God. Certainly, God never changes. So this, this is the same God. He's faithful. He's loving. But first and foremost, he's holy. And before Christ, the Israelites didn't have a way to ensure their safety before God. Through the sacrifices and the celebrations of the Old Covenant, they could establish a relationship of faith and love with God. They could have a positive relationship with God. But they could still never approach him in the truest sense. His holiness was just too great for the types and shadows of the Old Covenant to bear. But compare those images to what's going on in Zion. At verse 22, it describes the angels in festal gathering. This is the word that's only used once in the New Testament, festal gathering. It's a festival. It's a feast. It's a celebration. And particularly, it's a festival that has to do with the gathering of a community, a community of people coming together to celebrate something. And so you've probably begun to pick up on, on, on some of these allusions by now. But this festal gathering points back to the Old Covenant feasts, which occurred three times a year. Or rather, those Old Covenant feasts point forward to this feast, the great feast in heaven, particularly the Feast of Weeks, which is the, the high point of uh, Jewish festival life. What's more, the, the firstborn here in verse 23 are likely the same Old Testament saints that are described in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. So in heaven, we find men and angels together enjoying a feast before God, and today, as we worship, as we come together today, we join in the same feast, the same celebration to honor God. And I'll remind you that God takes his feasting very seriously. To feast with God is a great honor. It's a great privilege. And he invites us week after week to come and join him in. You'll, you'll probably remember the, the parable of the wedding feast that Jesus tells. There's a king who invites uh, people to come to the wedding feast for his son, and they reject his invitation. So he punishes them and invites other people. And so God's invitation is not merely an invitation, it's also a command. It's a call to us 
to come into his presence. He lovingly calls us to eat with him. And we should respond with obedient joy because of what he has done for us. And so your mandate today from Hebrews 12 is to be joyful. That's not always easy. Things happen in life. We deal with struggles. But God's command and God's call to us is that we come into his presence with thanksgiving and singing and rejoicing. Not rolling out of bed, not disinterested, but engaged and joyful. I want to give you just some practical tips for that. Like these are, these are very practical. If you struggle with this, if you struggle to, to come joyfully and worship, here are a few things you can do. Uh, first, make sure you're physically prepared. You know, get some sleep the night before. Get up early enough to, to be ready and don't come in late, but be prepared physically. If you need to wake up your kids earlier, do that. They may resent you for it, but it's worth it. Come mentally prepared, number two. We post the bulletin on Friday, and so look through it. Prepare yourself with the scriptures. Find them in your Bible. Mark them. If, you, if there's a song you don't know, listen to it a couple of times. They're available online. If you're distracted by your smartphone, maybe you should leave it at home. If your whole family's here, you, you probably don't need all of you to have a phone, right? But the goal should be to remove all of these mental barriers, the things that are going to trip you up when you come to worship. We need to have mental focus on worship. And third, we should come spiritually prepared. Our spiritual lives should be Sabbath-oriented. This worship service that we're sitting in right now is the apex of earthly spiritual life. So when we come together, we get to actually experience heaven together. And so your day-to-day -day personal worship, your day-to-day -day family worship, ought to be guided and oriented by Sunday. So as you pray on Monday, as you pray on Tuesday, as you approach the next Sunday, be thinking back and forth. Be thinking to the Sunday before the, the Sunday ahead. Ask God to sustain you as you wait for this day. And if there's sin you need to repent of, if there's someone you need to reconcile with, go ahead and do it. Work to make your heart unencumbered by the worries of the world as you come into the heavenly courts. And if, if you do have these struggles, if you are struggling, bring them to God as you come in. Lift them up to him. Worship is not judgment, but mercy. Number three, worship is not judgment, but mercy. Central to the comparison between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is the theme of judgment and mercy. Verse 23 says, you have come to God, the judge of all. So the judgment, the judgment theme is abundantly clear at Mount Sinai. You see this very clearly in, in the first three verses here. But I thought we were done with that. I thought we were done with all the judgment. Why, why when we come to Mount Zion, we come to this new place, are we still experiencing judgment? Haven't, haven't we gotten past that? Well, yes and no. Uh, what, what we're seeing is absolutely an allusion to the last judgment. It's absolutely an allusion to God's holiness and his majesty. But it's also the beginning of a Trinitarian explanation of salvation. The, the author of Hebrews is unfolding how God actually saves us. And so God the Father, as judge, is the one who determines our fate. Judging is about discerning good from evil, right? And so he's the one who invites us to our table, to his table, and he's the one who has the authority to condemn us, but he also has the authority to declare us righteous by the work of his son. 
And so this is exactly the kind of judgment we receive at Zion. This is not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of blessing. And the Father's judgment sets his people apart for salvation and brings them in to the festival assembly, into the feast. This is what we see in Hebrews 12. This is the, the image. God isn't alone here. God, as judge, is not alone. But he's not surrounded by angels either. Certainly there are angels there. But who's closest to him? It says those who are closest to him are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This brings us to the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Uh, the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned explicitly by name here, but his work is evident. Who perfects the people of God? Who sanctifies them? The Holy Spirit does. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that allows people like us to come into the presence of God and to be near him. Also note, by the way, that these spirits have not been resurrected. And so this is another piece of evidence for this being a present reality, not just a future reality. So we, we see the Father judging, giving us a positive judgment. We see the Spirit perfecting the saints. But what's the ground for that? Why does the Father judge positively? Why does the Spirit perfect us? And the answer is Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. At the apex, at the top, the thing that divides Sinai from Zion is the person of Jesus Christ. No longer do we need the sprinkled blood of the sacrificed animals, but we have the sprinkled blood of the man, Jesus Christ, who is God himself. And notice that this blood speaks. But what is it saying? We have another voice who speaks the law at Mount Sinai. Is the blood of Jesus speaking the law? No. Is this blood calling out for justice, like the blood of Abel? You know, after Cain killed Abel, I have this listed in the notes, God tells Cain that Abel's blood cries out from the ground. It's a cry for retribution, for justice, for judgment. It's a plea to God that the wrongs committed in this world would be rectified. And so the right thing to do, the, the thing that we would think the just thing to do, would be if, if Cain has killed Abel, then Cain should die as well. But God doesn't respond in this way with Cain. Instead, he responds with patience. And in fact, he even protects Cain as he sends him out into the world. There is judgment there. But God doesn't pour out the fullness of that judgment on Cain. And so God responds to Abel's murder. Ultimately, by spilling the blood of his own son, just as Cain had spilled the blood of Adam's son. And as Abel's blood calls out for justice from the ground, Christ's blood calls out for mercy from the cross. Is the, now, the cry of Abel's blood is good. Justice is good. God is a lover of justice. But God also doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Justice is good and right. The world doesn't work without it. But justice doesn't forgive our iniquities. It doesn't heal our diseases or redeem us from the pit. For those things, to solve the problem at the level of the human heart, to, to really solve the problem at the root of all sin, we need mercy. And that's what Jesus' blood, the new covenant, covenant offers us. As we come to worship each Sunday, we're given the opportunity to renew that covenant with God. 
God's mercy is made present to us over and over again as we come together week after week to celebrate his feast. His mercy comes to us in our prayers and our songs, and most of all, by his word. So many of us live cut off from that, cut off from his mercy. We live in fear of his judgments. So many of us are stuck at Sinai, thinking we need to obey the law, unable to cast off the yoke of the law. But for Christians and unbelievers alike, the call is the same. Take up the yoke of Christ. Take up your cross. Come into his presence bearing your suffering, bearing your sin, bearing your shame. And let him pour his mercy out on you. You actually can't live without it. Not in a metaphorical sense. You can't live without God's mercy. And so come before him and receive it. Worship is not judgment, but worship is mercy. So when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what are we asking for? Well, number one, we're asking for Christ to bring his kingdom to us, to bring his kingdom where we are. And we're asking him to lift up our hearts to God in sacrificial praise. Two, we're asking that God would fill our hearts with joy. We're asking for that joy to drive out fear with love so that our joy can become the joy of the world as we take what we do here into the world. And third, we're asking for mercy. God's kingdom is a kingdom where all things are purified and all things are made new. And so we ask God to do the same for us, to purify us and to make us new so that the newness of our lives may make God's kingdom and will present to all the people of the earth. So is this what you pray for? Is this what you want for yourself? Is this what you want for your family, for your neighbors, for your church? That's the question God asked us today. If you want heaven, if you want joy, if you want mercy, then turn to him and worship. Bring your sins, bring your sufferings. Let him take those on. Let him fill your heart with joy. Let him lift you up to heaven and let him heal your diseases. Turn to him and worship him. And turn to him today and worship him together now as we sing this last hymn. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever.